0: Revelation chapter 7, verses 1 through 8. Revelation chapter 7, verses 1 through 8. After this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth, that no wind might blow on earth or sea or against any tree. Then I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun with the seal of the living God, and he called with a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm the earth and the sea, saying, "'Do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees "'until we have sealed the servants of our God "'on their foreheads. "'And I heard the number of the sealed, "'144,000 sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel.'" 12,000 from the tribe of Judah were sealed. 12,000 from the tribe of Reuben. 12,000 from the tribe of Gad. 12,000 from the tribe of Asher. 12,000 from the tribe of Naphtali. 12,000 from the tribe of Manasseh. 12,000 from the tribe of Simeon. 12,000 from the tribe of Levi. 12,000 from the tribe of Issachar. 12,000 from the tribe of Zebulun. 12,000 from the tribe of Joseph. And 12,000 from the tribe of Benjamin were sealed. Now, some of you that are following along and maybe are listening online are saying, hey, wait a minute. Didn't we just finish in chapter five? Why did we jump to chapter seven? What happened to chapter six? Well, remember, we're studying the book of Revelation chronologically. And so in order to do it chronologically, we have to go to chapter seven. And you're going to see a little bit later tonight, 14, to be able to deal with what's happening there, because what happens in chapter seven and 14 will help us understand what's going to happen next in chapter six. You see, In verse 1, we see that the angels at the four corners of the earth are not allowed to allow the wind to blow on the earth until the 144,000 are sealed. We're going to deal more a little bit later tonight with who the 144,000 are. But the events of chapter 6 are when the seals are opened. And as you know, when the seals are opened, things begin to happen on the earth. And during the time of the opening of the seals, there's going to be a lot of destruction on the earth. But they're not allowed. These angels aren't allowed to do their destruction, I'm going to show you what the wind represents and is, the angels aren't allowed to do their destruction until the 144,000 are sealed by God. So the sealing of the 144,000 has to occur prior to the opening of the seals in chapter 6. So let's deal with this wind. Look again at chapter 7 verse 1, and after this I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth, that no wind might blow on the earth or sea or against any tree. All right, now listen closely. They were then told, don't harm the earth until the 104,000 are sealed. What is this wind that it's talking about? Well, the context of this passage and knowing some of these Old Testament judgment prophecies will help us. So go and put a bookmark here in Revelation 7 and go with me to Daniel chapter 7. Again, I, I cannot repeat this enough and so you'll hear me say this over and over throughout our study. If you had known the Old Testament. If you had read the Old Testament and known what it had said, the book of Revelation would have never been a mystery to anyone. Because the book of Revelation just takes the Old Testament and puts it together. And if you knew the Old Testament, you would read Revelation 7 and you would know instantly what the four winds are and what these four angels represent. In Daniel chapter 7, look at verses 1 through 8. says in the first year of Belshazzar, King of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream and visions of in of his head as he lay in his bed. Then he wrote down the dream and he told the sum of the matter. Daniel declared, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, do you see it? The four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea. And four great beasts came up out of the sea, different from one another, and the first was like a lion and had eagle's wings. And then as I looked, its wings were plucked off, and it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man, and the mind of a a man was given to it. And behold, another beast, a second one like a bear, it was raised up on one side, and it had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth, and it was told, Arise, devour much flesh." After this, I looked, and behold, another like a leopard with four wings of a bird on its back, and the beast had four heads, and dominion was given to it. And after this, I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, terrifying and dreadful and exceedingly strong. It had great iron teeth. It devoured in broken pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns." And I considered the horns, and behold, there came from up among them another horn, a little one, before which of the three first horns were plucked up by the roots. And behold, in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man, and a mouth speaking great things. Now, we're not going to go into the detail about this prophecy, about the nations that were going to come in succession of judgment, but we definitely know, if we've read any kind of prophecies about the end, that this fourth beast is pointing toward the Antichrist. But at the beginning, we see that the angels, or the the four winds of heaven are tied to judgment of God. And it becomes more clear if we actually go to Jeremiah. Go to Jeremiah chapter 49. In Jeremiah chapter 49, verses 34 through 38. Some of your Bibles have a little head, head, heading on set of the head of this section in verse 34. and it says judgment on Elam. Says the word of the Lord, verse thirty-four of Jeremiah forty-nine. The word of the Lord that came to Jeremiah the prophet concerning Elam, in the beginning of the reign of Zedekiah, king of Judah. Thus says the Lord of hosts: Behold, I will break the bow of Elam, the mainstay of their might, and I will bring upon Elam what? The four winds from the four quarters of heaven, and I will scatter them to all those winds, and there shall be no nation to which those driven out of Elam shall not come. I will terrify them before their enemies and before those who seek their life. I will bring disaster upon them. My fierce anger declares the Lord. I will send the sword after them until I have consumed them. And I will set my throne in Elam and destroy their king and officials declares the Lord. So we see again, just like we did in Daniel. We see here in Jeremiah that the four winds of heaven are representative of God's judgment that he sends on the earth. uh, Sometimes to specific aspects or parts of the earth. Here it's on Elam. We can even see, go real quick to Hosea chapter 13. Go to Hosea chapter 13. You could, if you wanted to, read all of verses 1 through 15. But I'm just going to show you verses 15, just, uh, just 15 itself. Because you see in the whole context of Hosea chapter 13 that God is bringing a judgment against Israel. And in verse 15 he says, Though he may flourish among his brothers, the east wind, the wind of the Lord shall come, rising from the wilderness, and his fountain shall dry up, his spring shall be parched, it shall strip his treasury of every precious thing. So again, as John sees in the book of Revelation that these angels, these four angels on the four corners of the earth, we know them now as the four winds of heaven, were told not to do any harm on the earth until what? The 144,000 are sealed. They're not to execute the judgment that God's going to use them to execute on the earth during this tribulation period until after the 144,000 are sealed. And so when the seals are begun to be opened, the judgment of God begins at that time. Some people think that the tribulation period has the great tribulation, which is the second half, and that's when God's wrath comes. No, God's wrath begins at the beginning, folks. And the angels were told, you can't do your judgment, you can't do your harm until God is sealed and protected. That's very important. Sealed and protected these 144,000. Those of you that know your Bibles a little bit about some prophecy... When people come to faith during the tribulation period, are they protected by God? No. Most of them will be put to death for their faith. We will see at one point the souls under the altar, those who have been beheaded for their faith, have been put to death for their faith during the tribulation period, crying out and said, How long until you avenge our blood? Believers will not be spared being put to death during that time. But these 144,000 are different. They will be sealed by God and they won't be allowed to be harmed And so we need to find out who these 144,000 are then. All right. This is why we jump to chapter seven before we get to chapter six, because they have to be sealed prior to the opening of the seals. So let's deal with this 144,000. Who are they? Now, I'm just going to tell you now, there has been much false teaching about these individuals over the years. And even people who don't know the Bible or who have never even read it often speak of the 144,000. It's been amazing to me over the years as I talk about things of prophecy and I'll talk with someone that doesn't even know the Bible and I'll talk about heaven and they'll say, oh yeah, the 144,000. The Jehovah's Witnesses have actually taught that the only the 144,000 are the ones who go to heaven. The rest will live on a redeemed earth for their eternity. The Jehovah's Witnesses teach that only 144,000, they think the 144,000 are those who are gonna spend eternity with God in heaven, but everybody else that gets saved is gonna be on the earth. Well, there's two main problems with that. One is biblical and one is in in their doings. I'll explain that one in a second. The biblical problem with that is, the Bible teaches, and turn with me to Revelation 21 and you'll see that there is no distinction between God in heaven and those on the earth in the new heaven and the new earth. In the eternal state, you're going to see the new Jerusalem coming down from heaven to this earth that's been redeemed, and and actually not redeemed, rebuilt. And then God comes and dwells with man on the earth. Listen to Revelation 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is where? With man, and he will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more, neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Look closely. At the end of the tribulation period, at the end of the millennial kingdom, when God brings the final judgment on all the wicked, He is going to destroy the earth that we know. It will be reworked during the tribulation period, redeemed during the millennial kingdom. But after the millennial kingdom is over, it's going to be totally destroyed. And God's going to make a whole new one. And God himself will come live with us there on that earth. Heaven is where God is, right? So heaven is going to be on the new heaven and the new earth. It's going to be right there. So the Jehovah's Witnesses teaching that only the 144,000 get to be with God in heaven, and the rest of the people that get saved or become Jehovah's Witnesses, they get to live on the redeemed earth. Their theology says there's two different places, where God is and where everybody else will be. The Bible says for eternity they're going to be in the exact same place. So that's bad teaching. Second of all, for those of you that know this, they already gave out all those tickets a long time ago. Seriously, they were so sure of their math that they had figured out when God was going to return, they passed out all the 144,000 tickets. Those Jehovah's Witnesses that knock on your door, they ain't offering you to go to heaven. They're offering you to live on the earth away from God because they already passed out all the 144,000 tickets. Well, folks, let's go back to Revelation 7 and let the scriptures teach us who the 144,000 are. Actually, we're going to see very clearly from our context and some more in Revelation chapter 14 that who they are. It's very clear who the 144,000. I, I am the hardest, having the hardest time tonight saying 144,000. All right, it's very clear who they are from this context and from other scriptures. I can't wait to show you some things I found, which are pretty cool, things I hadn't even seen before my study about this passage. First of all, who are the 144,000? They're Jews. They're not anybody. They're Jews. If you look closely, there are 12,000 from each of the tribes, 12 tribes of Israel. And it clearly, it doesn't just say Israel and then some people can say, well, Israel doesn't mean Israel anymore. No, no, no. It lists each tribe. Now, some of you who know a little bit more because you've studied this kind of thing, you might say, hang on for a second. Um, The tribe of Dan is missing and it's been replaced with the tribe of Joseph. I see you smiling over there, Sue. I'm about to take your smile away. I'm sorry, Um, because the question is, why is the tribe of Dan omitted and replaced with Joseph? Well, let me just tell you, it's a study for another time. (laughs) I believe that there may be some scriptural answers. I really do. I dug into this. I really did some study on this because I was praying about whether or not God wanted me to teach it to you. And I came to realize that even though I believe there are some real scriptural reasons for why, it's far too deep of a study, and we would lose most of you along the way, including me. It is a deep, 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 hard study. I think there are answers. It's not beneficial for us to chase that rabbit. I think we may catch it, but it would take so long for us to catch it, we'd be out of breath and forget what book we would just studied, because it is a long, deep thing. I believe there are answers, but how about this? God has a real good reason, and we don't have to know. This much we do know, they are Jews. The 144,000 are Jews. So don't let anybody say, you can be a part of the 144,000 unless you're Jewish. And also say, you don't want to be a part of the 144,000, because that means you're going to be here on the tribulation period, during the tribulation period, and you won't have been saved prior to, and you won't be raptured, they're Jews. But there's some more we can see from the scripture. We also see that they're servants. Here in Revelation chapter 7, they're described not only as Jews, but they're servants of God. So if they're servants of God, we've got to deal with this question then. What is their role? If these 144,000 who were sealed at the beginning of the tribulation period by God, protected by God, he puts his name on their forehead, They won't be able to be harmed during this time, and they're called as servants. What is their role? Well, let's go to chapter 7 and look at verses 9 through 17. I think what happens next in Revelation 7 gives us a clue. It says, After this, verse 9, I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, And crying out with a loud voice salvation belongs to our god who sits on the throne and to the lamb and all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped god saying amen blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our god forever and ever amen then one of the elders addressed me saying who are these clothed in white robes and from whence have they come i love this answer I said to him, Sir, you know. (laughs) And he said to me, These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. They shall hunger no more, neither shall thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. By the way, these are all things you're going to read later on that are going to happen during the tribulation period. For the Lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd, and he will guide them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. So we see now that John is shown this 144,000 Jews who are sealed by God before the tribulation period begins, or right at the very beginning of the tribulation, before the seals are opened, and then right after that, we see immediately there is this huge number of people from every nation, tribe, and language that have come to faith during the tribulation period. Is there a correlation between the two? I think there is, and the answer is in the book of Zephaniah. I'll be honest with you, folks. I've never seen this before. Zephaniah chapter 3. Go to Zephaniah. No, I had seen Zephaniah before, but I have not seen this passage really before in this way. Go to Zephaniah chapter 3 and look at verses 9 through 13. And I know some of us might have a little trouble finding Zephaniah. Zechariah actually is easier to find. So if you can find Zechariah, back up two books because Haggai is between Zechariah and Zephaniah. Zephaniah chapter 3 and listen to verses 9 through 13. We're going to slowly look at this prophecy because I believe this prophecy in Zephaniah describes the 144,000 and what their role is. OK, Zephaniah, I want you, I want you to be, catch up with me. So you got Zechariah back up to Haggai, back up one more book to Zephaniah. All right. Chapter three, look at verse nine. Some of your Bibles might have a heading that says the conversion of the nations <laughs> for at that time. Again, one of those <laughs> phrases that are used to describe the last days and, and the end times. For at that time, I will change the speech of the peoples to a pure speech that all of them may call upon the name of the Lord and serve him with one accord. From beyond the rivers of Cush, my worshipers, the daughter of my dispersed ones. In other words, these people from all these nations that are going to become worshipers of God are, well, they come about because of his dispersed ones. All right, keep that in mind. The daughters of my dispersed ones shall bring my offering. On that day you shall not be put to shame because of the deeds by which you have rebelled against me. For then I will remove from your midst your proudly exultant ones, and you shall no longer be haughty in my holy mountain. But I will leave in your midst a people, humble and lowly. They shall seek refuge in the name of the Lord. Those who are left in Israel, and here's how they're described. They shall do no injustice and speak no lies, nor shall there be found in their mouth a deceitful tongue For they shall graze and lie down, and none shall make them afraid. So, in this prophecy, God says that in the last days, there's gonna be a group of people from other nations that are gonna become worshipers of God. He's gonna make their speech a pure speech. And they're gonna come out because of the work of His dispersed ones. They're gonna be the daughter of His dispersed ones. And then He describes the dispersed ones, those who are left in Israel. And they're described as those who will do no injustice and speak no lies and nor shall there be found in their mouth a deceitful tongue." Now again, this is why we need to read the Bible and meditate on it. This is why we need to read it and take it to heart. Because if you just read it and put it in, the Spirit of God, as you read other passages, will bring to your remembrance things you've read other places. That's what happens to me when I'm preaching. As I run across a passage, all of a sudden, the other places that similar things have been said start jumping into my head. And I have a trouble not preaching all of those passages and I have to stick with what God wants me to do. But as I read this in Zephaniah, it made me go, that's almost word for word, Revelation 14. Describing the 144,000. So put a bookmark here in Zephaniah and turn with me back to Revelation and look at chapter 14. Because they're also described in in Revelation chapter 14, verses 1 through 5. All we know about them from Revelation 7 is that the 144,000 are servants of God from the 12 tribes of Israel. 12,000 from each tribe. And we know that they're sealed by God at the beginning of the tribulation period. Well, Revelation 14 gives us more information about them. John says, Then I looked, and behold, on Mount Zion stood the Lamb, and with him 144,000 who had his name and his Father's name written on their foreheads. We've already seen them in chapter 7. And I heard a voice from heaven like the roar of many waters, and like the sound of loud thunder. The voice I heard was like the sound of harpists playing on their harps, and they were singing a new song before the throne and before the living creatures and before the elders. No one could learn that song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. It is these who have not defiled themselves with women, for they are virgins. It is these who follow the Lamb wherever He goes. These have been redeemed from mankind as first fruits for God and for the Lamb, and in their mouth no lie was found, for they are blameless. Did anybody remember where we read, in their mouth no lie was found? In Zephaniah. Again, if you had known the Old Testament and you read the book of Revelation, you'd go, hey, that's the same description as these dispersed ones who are left in Israel, and God's going to use them to have the nations come to faith in Jesus Christ. We know now from Revelation that's going to happen during the tribulation period. So we get some more information now from Revelation 14 about these 144,000. So far we know that they're sealed at the beginning of the tribulation period. They are Jews, and they are servants of God, but Revelation 14 gives us some more information now. It it says that they are virgins. Now, this tells us from the context here that they're male witnesses because they haven't defiled themselves with what? With women. Now, let me take a second here and show you from Scripture. Being married is not a sin. Put a put a bookmark again here and go to Hebrews chapter 13. I want you to see it from the Scripture for yourself. Hebrews chapter 13. Look at verse four. Hebrews 13, verse 4 says, let marriage be held in honor among all and let the marriage bed be undefiled for God will judge the sexually immoral and the adulterous. So look, let the marriage bed be held in honor or marriage be held in honor by all. God sees marriage as a good thing, does he not? By the way, who's the one that made marriage? God did. He's the one who said it's not good for man to be alone. He created Eve to be his his helpmeet. He actually said, be fruitful and multiply. He said, I want you to be faithful to each other. It's always been one man, one woman is God's design. Man tries to run away from all that kind of stuff. Marriage is not a bad thing. If there was no marriage, there would not even be a Messiah. Do you see what I'm saying? And so I want you to understand that marriage is not a bad thing. But at this time in history, which is to come, At this time, these individuals have been chosen by God for a very special purpose and they are to be fully devoted to the Lord and not married. Because as you're about to see in 1 Corinthians 7, there are those that God chooses that they not be married because he wants them to be fully devoted to himself. So go with me to 1 Corinthians 7 and let's get a little more clear understanding of this whole context. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 25 through 35. Paul's writing to the church in Corinth, and he's dealing with this whole issue, and he deals with a lot of aspects of it, but just mainly in verses 25 through 35, we're going to look at right now. Chapter 7, 1 Corinthians 7, starting in verse 25. Now, Paul says, now concerning the betrothed, in other words, those that are engaged, aren't married yet, but they're engaged to be married. Now concerning the betrothed, I have no command from the Lord, but I give my judgment as one whom by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. I think that in view of the present distress, it is good for a person to remain as he is. In other words, are you bound to a wife? Don't seek to be free. Are you free from a wife? Don't seek a wife. But if you do marry, you haven't sinned. And if a betrothed woman marries, she has not sinned. Yet those who marry will have worldly troubles. And I would spare you that. This is what I mean, brothers. The appointed time has grown very short. From now on, let those who have wives live as though they had none. And those who mourn as though they were not mourning. And those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing. And those who buy as though they had no goods. And those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it. For the present form of this world is passing away. I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord. But the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife. I thought, sure, I'd hear an amen on that one right there, so... (laughs) But <laughs> how to please his wife and his interests are divided. And the unmarried and, or betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord and how to be holy in body and spirit. But the married woman is anxious about worldly things and how to please her husband. I gave you women a chance. You could have amen that you're supposed to be trying to please us. But boy, you guys are just like so focused on the scriptures. That's all it is. All right. I say this for your own benefit, not to lay any restraint upon you, but to promote good order and to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. In this passage, Paul says, and listen to how he words it. At this present time, time has grown short. And because of where we are in God's plan for things. I'm not saying that by God you can't get married. I'm just as one that I think is trustworthy, Paul says, Saying, look, if you're okay with not being married, that's probably a really good thing because you can fully devote yourself to the Lord because time is short. And the things of this world are going to, it. you have other things that you have to consider when you're married. Is it a bad thing to be married? No. If a woman marries who's betrothed, she's not sinned. It's not a bad thing. But he was saying, and if Paul, remember, Paul really expected the return of Jesus and the rapture of the church in his lifetime. Remember, Paul's the one who wrote, and we who are left till the coming of the Lord will be caught up. He thought the rapture was going to happen in his lifetime. Good for him. We should, too. For years, people have said, well, everybody thinks the rapture is going to happen in their lifetime, and it never did. And I say they're supposed to think it's supposed to happen in their lifetime. They're to be expecting it at any time, at any moment. It's a signless event. Paul thought it was going to happen, and his encouragement was... Because time is short, because of where we are in these days, if you can be fully devoted to the Lord and not encumbered with marriage and all those other issues, do it. How much more will during those 7 years when we know how short the time is, it not be a good thing for these 144,000 144, man, I'm having a hard time with that. 144,000 male Jews to be fully devoted to the Lord and the role he has for them. I don't really think there's going to be a whole lot of marriage ceremonies going on during the second half of the tribulation anyway, as you read what's going to happen. But folks, the fact that they are virgins doesn't mean that if you're not a virgin and you're married that that's a bad thing at all. Marriage is a good thing. And God wants a godly seed and a godly offspring. But if Paul, a little less than 2,000 years ago, wrote... Time is short. And because of where we are in God's time period, if you're not married, that's OK. It's probably a good thing. How much more so will it be during the tribulation period? All right. Again, this is why you need to know the whole of Scripture to build your doctrine in your theology, not just a verse here, or a verse there, because someone could just take that virgin verse and say, see, they defiled you've, you, got, you. Those of you who got married, you defiled yourself with women. That's not what the passage says at all. But if they have been chosen by God to be solely devoted to him during that time. Then they will have defiled their self. You understand what I'm saying? They will have defiled their with the woman, because they're done opposite of what God had chosen for their life. The Bible says for some of you that are here that are single, that God has chosen some to be single. And if that's the role that God has for you, embrace it. Paul says, if you're not to be single because you just won't be pure unless you're married, it's better to marry than burn. I was one of those ones. I was so focused on getting a wife, I couldn't even fathom being single. And that was all I ever thought about. And actually, I remember back in the days before I even met Becky, whenever I even had a girlfriend, and I brought her to church, I couldn't tell you what was going on in the service. I was too busy sitting thinking, do I hold her hand now or let, do I hold her hand now or not yet? And it finally came to a point where God took me personally through a three-year period where, and I'm good looking, (laughs) where a three-year period where nobody would go on a date with me. (laughs) So finally what I just said was, Lord, and I couldn't believe these words came out of my mouth. It was a journey he had taken me through. Lord, if you choose me to be single the rest of my life, that's okay. And it wasn't very long after that, that God brought Becky into my life, but he had to get my heart devoted to him. Those of you in here that are single, there's nothing wrong with being married. But if God says, I've chosen you to be single, embrace it. Embrace it, because you know what? Would we not agree that if Paul thought that the time was that close in his day, we have more reason to think that it's even closer now? Some of you might be worried about getting married, and who knows whether or not you'll even finish. Some of you are engaged. You might not even get to your ceremony because of what's coming. But those ones who are the 144,000 are virgins, and they were chosen by God to be solely devoted to him and the role he had for them during that time period. They're also described in another way, which I think is really cool. If you go back to Revelation chapter 14, you'll see that they're described as first fruits. Now, if you don't know what that means, let me just take a second to tell you. All through the scriptures, whenever you see the term firstfruits, it describes the first of something that is represented by the first. In other words, the Bible says that Jesus was the first fruits of those who have risen from the dead. Well, was Jesus the first one to rise from the dead? No, Lazarus was risen from the dead. Jairus' daughter was risen from the dead. But Jesus is described as the first fruits of those who have risen from the dead. Why? Because when Jesus rose from the dead, he never died again. He's the first that represents all the rest that are in his same category. He is the first fruits of those who have risen from the dead never to die again. In Revelation, sorry, in Romans chapter 16, in Romans chapter 16, you'll see in verse 5 that Paul describes this one individual as the firstfruits of those who are saved in that, in that area there. In Revelation, so I keep saying Revelation, Romans 16, look at verse 5. It says, greet also the church in their house. Greet my beloved Eponetus, who was the first convert to Christ in Asia. By the way, in your Bibles, it might say fruits, Because that's actually what the word is. Epinetus was the first one saved in Asia. He is the representative of all the others who are going to be saved in Asia. In 1 Corinthians, you're in Romans, go to 1 Corinthians chapter 16 as well. And look at what Paul says at the end of 1 Corinthians in chapter 16, verse 15. He says, now I urge you, brothers, you know that the household of Stephanas were the first converts. Again, that word is first fruits in Achaia, and they have devoted themselves to the service of the saints. All right. So again, he describes them as the first believers in Achaia. Again, the first fruits. If the 144,000 are the first fruits of the tribulation period, what does that mean? They're the first believers in the tribulation period. Has anybody caught it yet? What does that mean about us? We're gone. We're gone. He started a new thing, the church has been raptured. And they're the first ones to be saved during this time period. They are the first fruits. And he now, as we're beginning to see, sends them out. Well, I'll read you what I wrote in my notes. The 144,000 are the first converts during the tribulation period. They are male Jews whose role as servants of God sends them all over the globe as protected witnesses for Christ. And because of their ministry, thousands upon thousands of peoples from all tribes and languages and nations will come to faith in Jesus. And as we'll see, most will be killed for their faith, but the 144,000 won't be. And they are Jews that God sends into the whole globe, the dispersed ones, to preach about Jesus. And those who respond to their preaching become believers because of the blood of the Lamb. They'll probably be killed because of their faith during this time period. But the 144,000 aren't the only ones that go to heaven. The 144,000 aren't us. The 144,000 are clearly Jew, Jewish males who are God's servant during that time period. All right? So praise the Lord, I'm not a part of the 104,000. 100, 144,000. All these years, everybody thought the 144,000 were the special ones. Oh, they're very, very special, and thank God for them. But it's not talking about us. It's talking about these witnesses to come. Now, as we begin to try to draw this lesson to a close, we still got about 20 minutes at the most left here. I started a little late, so I know what time it is. God, I want to show you, God had planned to use Israel as his witnesses from the beginning. Another reason why the 144,000 are Jewish witnesses is, is God has had a plan all along from the very beginning to use the nation of Israel as his light to the rest of the world. So I'm going to walk you through a very brief, and it's not going to seem brief to some, but it's a very brief in comparison to what's really here in the scriptures, a brief study and showing you how God had planned to do this all along. Go to Genesis chapter 12. Genesis chapter 12 and look at verses 1 through 3. And some of you, I'm going to do this fast enough that you might just want to write down verses and go back and look at them later at a slower pace or get, go online and listen to it. And you can always push pause. I've heard too many people tell me that's the thing they love about going back and listening online is just being able to push pause and shutting me up. But in Genesis chapter 12, look at verses 1, 2, and 3. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you and I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing and I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Now a part of this prophecy is meaning Jesus because he's going to come from this people but it's more than just just Jesus. As you're about to see, God is saying, I'm going to use you as my witness and my blessing to the whole world. All right. Go to Genesis 18. We'll see some more. Genesis 18, verses 17 and 18. The Lord said, shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do, seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. He's about to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. And he's, God says, Am I gonna hide this from Abraham? And he describes Abraham as one who through him all the nations are gonna be blessed. Go to Genesis twenty-two. Look at verses fifteen through eighteen. And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven, and he said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this, and have not withheld your son, your only son. I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore and your offspring offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies and in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you obeyed my voice. Again, a picture of what he was going to do through Jesus, but also as you're about to see as you put the scriptures together, that God was going to use the nation of Israel as his witness, as his light to the Gentiles. Go to Exodus chapter 19. We're in Genesis, just turn over one book to Exodus chapter 19 and look at verses 1 through 6. God begins to reveal more and more of his plan over the years in the scriptures as he goes and he speaks to the nation of Israel. In Exodus chapter 19, starting in verse 1, it says, On the third new moon, after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. They set out from Rephidim and came into the wilderness of Sinai, and they encamped in the wilderness. And there Israel encamped before the mountain while Moses went up to God. Priests are representatives between God and people. And God says, I'm going to use you, nation of Israel, as my priests, as my representatives between me and the rest of the world. I want to use you as the go-between, if you will, or my ambassadors to represent me. Again, as you're going to see, Israel didn't do too good of a job. And Isaiah 43, keep reading, you'll see God say something else. Go to Isaiah chapter 43. I told you I'm giving you the short version, so we're jumping way ahead to Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 43, look at verses 1 through 21. Isaiah 43, starting in 1. But now, thus says the Lord, He who created you, O Jacob, He who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you, I have called you by name, you are mine. When you pass through the waters, I'll be with you, and through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned, and the flame shall not consume you, for I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior, your Savior. I give Egypt as your ransom, Cush and Seba in exchange for you, because you are precious in my eyes and honored, and I love you. I give men in return for you, peoples in exchange for your life. Fear not, for I am with you. I will bring your offspring from the east and from the west, and I will gather you, and I will say to the north, give up, to the, and to the south, do not withhold. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the ends of the earth. Everyone who is called by, na- by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. Bring out the people who are blind yet have eyes, who are deaf yet have ears. All the nations gather together and the peoples assemble. Who among them can declare this and show us the former things? Let them bring their witnesses to prove them right. And let them hear and say it is true. You are my what? What? Witnesses. He's speaking to Israel. You are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he before me. No God was formed, nor shall there be any after me. I am the Lord. And besides me, there is no savior. I declared and saved and proclaimed when there was no strange God among you. And you are my. Do you see it again? Witnesses, declares the Lord. And I am God. Also, henceforth, I am he. There is none who can deliver from my hand. I work and who can turn it back? Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel, for your sake I send to Babylon and bring them all down as fugitives, even the Chaldeans and the ships in which they rejoice. I am the Lord, your Holy One, the Creator of Israel, your King. Thus says the Lord, who makes the way in the sea, a path in the mighty waters, who brings forth chariot and horse, army and warrior. They lie down and they cannot rise. They are extinguished, quenched like a wick. Remember not the former things, nor consider the things of old. Behold, I am doing a new thing. Now it springs forth. Do you not perceive it? I will make a way in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. The wild beasts will honor me, the jackals and ostriches. For I I give water in the wilderness, rivers in the desert, to give drink to my chosen people, to the people whom I form for myself, that they might declare my praise. God all along has been saying, I want to use you, Israel, as my witness, as my ambassadors, as my priests. Through you, all the peoples of the earth will be blessed. Go to Isaiah 49. Look at verse 6. Isaiah chapter 49, verse 6. And now the Lord says, He who formed me from the womb to be his what? To his servant to bring Jacob back to him that he might that Israel might be gathered to him. For I am honored in the eyes of the Lord and my God has become my strength. Again, we see the nation wanted to be an an instrument. We see in verse 40 in chapter 49 verses 14 through 16. But Zion said, the Lord has forsaken me. My Lord has forgotten me. No, wait a minute. We got to stop. Why was Israel saying God had forsaken them? Why was Zion? Why was Israel saying God's forgotten me? God's forsaken me. Why were they saying that? They had gone into captivity. Why had they gone into captivity? What was their sin? They were worshiping what? (laughs) Idols and other gods. In other words, the people that God had chosen to reveal himself to and to display his might in in their midst in ways that the other nations would not see so that they would be used of him to declare his glory to the rest of the world. They started worshiping other gods and other idols. Instead of being a light to the world, they became like the world. And the world affected them, and they started to act like the rest of the world, and they worshiped the gods of these other nations. And because of that, God said, I'm going to bring judgment upon you, and I'm going to scatter you. He scattered them for a time to Assyria and Babylonia, and then he brought them back, given them their opportunity. Of course, they blew that opportunity. And because of that, and the rejection of the Messiah, when he came and revealed himself, literally on the day. We'll get to that if the rapture doesn't come first later in our study. I'm going to show you from Daniel Daniel's prophecy in, in Daniel chapter 9, that the day that Jesus rode into Jerusalem had been prophesied to that day. That it actually it said in the book of Daniel that on this day, the Messiah will come. But they missed it. And that's why Jesus, when he rode into Jerusalem on that day, wept when he got to the Jerusalem. He said, oh, if only you'd known what would bring you peace. But now it's hidden from your eyes. And just like the prophecy said, he scattered them to all the nations, not just to Babylonia or Assyria. They had been scattered everywhere. And for the longest time, there was no Israel that we could see. But the prophecies all have said that in the last days, as we've already read, he's going to bring them back from where? from everywhere. He's going to say to all those nations, give them up. Let them go. And he's going to bring them back. We're seeing it begin. It started in 1948 that we see when they became a nation. It actually started prior to that, but they became a nation in 1948. And little by little, Jews around the world are starting to feel this need to go back to the land. And God is doing it, but it hasn't fully happened yet. But when this day comes, he is going to finish Using them as he had planned at the beginning as his witnesses to the rest of the globe. And the 144,000 are a big part in that. Are a big part in that. Go to Isaiah 60 and we'll close with this tonight. Isaiah 60 verses 1 through 22. Isaiah 60 verses 1 through 22. Here we see the future glory of Israel. Arise, shine, for your light has come. And the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness shall cover the earth, and thick darkness the peoples. But the Lord will arise upon you, and his glory will be seen upon you. And nations shall come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your rising. Let me stop real quick here, and let me catch you up with what's going on. We've already talked about how the church age is just a time period in which God is, by his own grace, saving Gentiles, and giving us everything he's promised Israel in the future, Putting his spirit within us, which he said he'll do to them in the last days during the millennial kingdom. And he's given us salvation and just erased our sin by his grace, which he's going to do for them as well. But we're gone at the end of the church age. During that tribulation period, the 144,000 are sealed at the beginning to be witnesses throughout the globe. They will go and many will come to faith throughout all the nations. And they'll be probably put to death and most likely put to death because of their faith. These 144,000 will be spared. At the end of the tribulation, or the midpoint actually of the tribulation period, this Antichrist is going to step into the wing of the temple. You're going to see this all laid out in our study, but let me just give you a little heads up, little foundation. He's going to declare himself to be God. He's going to step into the wing of the temple and then and, and stop the sacrifice. And at that time, he's going to go after the nation of Israel in a real bad way. And the Bible is going to show us later on as we do this study that over two-thirds of the nation of Israel is going to be killed at that time. One-third is going to escape and they're going to make it out into the desert and they're going to be pre- protected by God. And that's where they're going to hide and he's going to protect them. And at the end of that tribulation period, Jesus comes back to where they're hiding and he defeats, he atones for their sin They look on him whom they pierced and they come to faith in Jesus. He will from that point defeat all his enemies in the battle of Armageddon all the way up the valley of Jezreel to Jerusalem. He will ascend the Mount of Olives. He will step on it. It will split in two and the millennial kingdom will begin. And this is when this is going to happen. When all the nations are going to come to Israel and to Jerusalem and worship because God is going to finally, ultimately reveal his glory through those people. Arise, shine, for your light has come. And the glory of the Lord has risen upon you, for behold, darkness shall cover the earth, that's going to happen during the tribulation period, and thick darkness the peoples, but the Lord will arise upon you, and his glory will be seen upon you, and nations shall come to your light, and the kings to the brightness of your rising. Lift up your eyes all around and see, they all gather together, they come to you. Your sons shall come from afar, and your daughters shall be carried on the hip. Then you shall see and be radiant, your heart shall thrill and exult, because the abundance of the sea shall be turned to you. The wealth of the nations shall come to you you. A multitude of camels shall cover you, and the young camels of Midian and Ephah, and all those from Sheba shall come. They shall bring gold and frankincense. They shall bring good news, the praises of the Lord. All the flocks of Kedar shall be gathered to you. The rams of Nebath shall minister to you. They shall come up with acceptance on my altar, and I will beautify my beautiful house for the name of the Lord your God, and for the Holy One of Israel, because He has made you beautiful." foreigners shall build up your walls and their kings shall minister to you for in my wrath i struck you but in my favor i have had mercy on you your gates shall be opened continually day and night they shall not be shut that people may bring to you the wealth of the nations with their kings led in procession for the nation and kingdom that will not serve you shall perish those nations shall be utterly laid waste The glory of Lebanon shall come to you, the cypress, the plain, and the pine, to beautify the place of my sanctuary, and I will make the place of my feet glorious. Did you catch that? The place of my feet. What does that mean? He's going to be there. He's going to be standing there in Israel. He's going to be leading from Israel. The sons of those who afflicted you shall come bending low to you, and all who despised you shall bow down to your feet. They shall call you the city of the Lord, the Zion of the Holy One of Israel." Whereas you have been forsaken and hated with no one passing through, I will make you majestic forever, a joy from age to age. You shall suck the milk of nations, and you shall nurse at the breast of kings, and you shall know that I, the Lord, am your Savior and your Redeemer, the Mighty One of Jacob. Instead of bronze, I will bring gold. Instead of iron, I will bring silver. Instead of wood, bronze. Instead of of stones, iron. I will make your overseers peace and your taskmasters righteous. Violence shall no more be heard in your land, devastation or destruction within your borders. You shall call your walls salvation and your gates praise. The sun shall be no more your light by day, nor for brightness shall the moon give you light. But the Lord will be your everlasting light and your God will be your glory. Your sun shall no more go down, nor your moon withdraw itself. For the Lord will be your everlasting light and your days of mourning shall be ended. Your people shall be all righteous. They shall possess the land forever. The branch of my planting, the work of my hands, that I might be glorified. The least one shall become a clan, and the smallest one a mighty nation. I am the Lord. In its time, I will hasten it. Now, I I don't know how God speaks to you in this, but I know one thing he tells me. He tells me that I'm to have a heart for his people. Are they still under a judgment? Yes. Is he beginning the gathering? Yes. But at the same time, they haven't come to faith yet and they're going to still have to go through a trying and a, and a tribulation and a shaping and a, a discipline of the Lord. But the Bible's very, very clear, folks. We who have been who are called the church, who have been granted this salvation should not think ourselves better than them. Do not read the prophecies about the last days and try to read the church into them. We're not there. It's about Israel. We have just been grafted in for a season for his glory and to make Israel jealous. But there'll come a time when the time of the Gentiles will come to a close and God will finish what he promised for Israel. And these prophecies are literal and they are to come. And the 144,000 for years have been described as anything but Israel. But the Bible's very clear. It's Israel. It's his Jews who he's going to use. And he's going to at one time. Isn't that amazing? Think about what's going on right now. How does the world feel about Israel? <laughs> Everybody hates them. How come they're still there? How many of you know any Moabites? Anybody know any Ammonites? How come Israel, the tiniest of all the nations, whom all the nations have tried to wipe off the face of the earth, who have been just as wicked as any other nation, how come they're still here? Because God made a promise to Abraham and his descendants that they will possess the land forever and ever and ever. And God later on says to the nation of Israel in Malachi, I, the Lord, don't change. That's why you're not destroyed. The only reason you're still here, Israel, is because I made a promise to your forefathers and I don't break my promises. Oh, I'm not going to do this for your sake, he says, but for the sake of my glorious name. But folks... Do not fall into the sin of many in Christendom today. And many major Christian denominations have said that Israel is no longer, that Israel is now the church and that there is no millennial kingdom. It's just a spiritual ending of the world. And God is not going to use Israel. We're the new Israel. The Bible is so clear that that can't be the truth. So what we need to do is we need to understand that God has a plan for them. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. Be watching what's going on. Beg for God to finish what he started because he's in the works for it. And in the meantime, just thank him that you've been allowed to be a part of it. In view of his mercies, Paul says at the end of Romans chapter 11, as he's dealing with this whole concept, he deals with chapter 9 and chapter 10 and chapter 11 about how God's not done with Israel. Three times he says, "Is God done with Israel? No. Have they fallen? No. Three times he asks that question and says, absolutely not. And he even says, those of us who have been grafted in as a wild olive shoot don't think we're better than the natural branches. But at the end of it, Paul just says simply this. Oh, the depth of the wisdom and the riches and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments, his paths beyond tracing out. Who's known the mind of the Lord or who's ever been his counselor? Who's ever given to God that God should repay him? For from him and to him and through him and for him are all things. To him be the glory forever and ever. Folks, avoid the whole. I know what the Bible says, but I think it's about God. And last night. As I was standing over the casket of one of my best friends who died only six years from how old I am now, he's 56, I'm 50. It could be me in six years. I can't even fathom what his wife and his children are going through. And he was walking with the Lord, serving the Lord fully to the last day of his life. He had already been saving up for a next mission trip he was heading on. As I stood there over the casket of my friend, I had to tell the people there, I don't understand why he died. I don't get it. But the Bible says that we're not going to be able to figure God out like I just quoted to you. But if you keep reading in, Isaiah, in Revelation, sorry, Romans chapter 11, when it gets to chapter 12, he says, therefore. In view of God's mercy. In view of the fact that this is all about him, for him and by him and for him. In view of the fact that this is all about God and he's allowed us to be a part of it. He's actually given us the grace. He's going to glorify us with him. We're co-heirs with Christ. I don't understand how that all works. In view of his mercy, we're to offer our bodies as a living sacrifice daily and say, Lord, it's not my plan. It's your plan. Lord, I don't understand why you do things. I don't understand how you do things sometimes. And I don't have to. You've already proven who you are through Jesus Christ. And the rest is gravy. And if you slay me, yet will I trust you. And God had me lay a challenge to those people there last night, and especially his family. And some of his children were struggling. And how God had me word it to him was simply this. I don't get it why Mitch died. But I'm not going anywhere. And that proves I get it. If you don't get it, and you walk away from the Lord Jesus, you don't get it. I'm going to say it to you one more time and let the Spirit of God let us sink in. When those times come that we don't get it, the fact that we stay in faith proves that we get it. If those times come that you don't get it and you turn your back on God, you don't get it. It's not about us. It's about Him. Why has God chosen Israel? Not because they're the most beautiful, best Because he's the one who chose them for his purposes. Well, I don't think that it's fair. Hey, careful. (laughs) What does the scripture say, folks? The scripture says there is chosen people and he's going to finish what he started. Oh, they're going to have it rough between now and then. But one day, every nation is going to be coming to Israel and say, you're given glory because of your God. I hope between now and then you understand that you and I have been given that same role for a season. We are to be his ambassadors, a kingdom of priests, the Bible says in 1 Peter chapter 2. We're a holy nation, a chosen people, a people that are to declare the praises of God. That means that just like Israel was disobedient and they suffered because of it, you may miss out as well if you don't let God bring his glory through you to the people that he wants to use you around. Don't go try to do things for God. Daily lay yourself on the altar, and the Bible says, then you'll be able to know what his will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will.